reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 3. It's on page 1235 of the Church Bible. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. When he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. <coughs> to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness 
and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation chapter 3 open, page 1235. Page 1235, you should have a church Bible with you. And uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to look at these three letters together. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Our Heavenly Father, as we uh, read and listen to these letters from your Son, the Lord Jesus, to these churches in Asia Minor, back then in the first century, we pray that we would be listening to what your Spirit says to us through this word. Father, where we need to be challenged, please would your Son, the Lord Jesus, do that this morning. Where we need reassurance, reminders of your love and power, of the wonderful hope that we have in him. Please grant us that reassurance. Help us to see the Lord Jesus in all his glory, in all his power, in all his saving power this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, I have no limericks uh, written on the spot. I have no uh, jokes but let me tell you, I am at the stage of life, and there may be others here, uh, who, whenever I uh, go to the doctors now, they test me for something different. You know, you turn up and they say, I think we should test you for this. Uh, now, that is actually reassuring. I, I know it just is a reminder that um, one's body is beginning to stop and uh, fail and break down, but I find it actually reassuring. Um, it is good, isn't it, to have a physical health checkup regularly. Uh, I went to the uh, opticians recently to have my eyes checked and uh, it was very encouraging to uh, see that my eyes were not deteriorating further and in four weeks I go to have my teeth examined. That's not such good news, let me say. Um, I seem to lose teeth regularly. But this morning, Jesus gives us a spiritual health check. And it is a spiritual health check, let me say, not individually, though of course we receive this individually and the uh, Spirit of God may well put things on your heart today, but it's to us corporately as a church. Let me say, if you're visiting us, a very warm welcome, please apply this to your situation. I want to say to those who are visiting here who are not yet Christians, maybe you're inquiring 
maybe you're examining the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to try to apply this to you as I go through, but let me say this is the Lord Jesus examining his churches and giving them a spiritual uh, checkup. And last week we thought about what churches should tolerate. Nowhere does Jesus say we should allow leaders to have wrong ideas in the church that put people's eternal salvation at risk. Nowhere does Jesus say that unity is at the expense of biblical truth and we're to stop tolerating what Jesus hates. Now this morning we look at three more churches in chapter 3. We can't look at everything that is down here, but we are going to go through them. None of them is exactly like Trinity. But we need to listen carefully to Jesus. As we were pointed out in our reading, he keeps saying at the end of each letter, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says. And firstly, and you have an outline, I want us to think about the drifting church. Sometimes people call this the sleeping church. Um, I've called it the drifting church. That is to wake up, repent, and complete their deeds. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, if you see the footnote at the bottom, the seven spirits is probably better translated the sevenfold spirit. And we're told in chapter 1 that the seven stars are the angels of each church. So along with the spirit, Jesus holds the seven angels who perhaps protect these seven churches What a reassurance that is, that these churches are in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ and his messengers. Now that is a comfort and an encouragement, but always it is a challenge. Are we expecting this morning Trinity Church to be challenged and to be comforted and to be encouraged? It's much easier to have the second, but maybe we need to hear the first. And you see, Jesus' diagnosis of the Sardis church is devastating. You see, outwardly, this church looks good. It sounds good. Look what it says. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Look at this. Wake up! Wake up! Strengthen what remains is about to die, for I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. So Jesus says that their deeds are not complete. Maybe the outward appearance of Christian commitment was there. They looked good, but Jesus says they're spiritually dead or nearly dead, about to die. And yet, There is so much more that they need to do. Uh, I 
think of the crescent here. We've been here 25 years. We were here for 15 years when the crescent, before it was renovated, looked wonderful on the outside. But if you looked carefully through the windows, you could see the bare rooms. You could see the plaster coming off the walls. There was no life in the building at night. It was outwardly impressive, but actually it was an empty shell. And here is a church with a reputation, verse 1. Perhaps people said, if you're in the area, you must go to Trinity Sardis. I've heard it's a marvellous church. And maybe the people at Trinity Sardis said, I wonder what Jesus will say about us. They had a great reputation, but the reality was very different. Devastating analysis, diagnosis from Jesus, isn't it? You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Now what I want to do is go through is to apply this both nationally and locally. Let me apply this on a national front. How easy it is for some to say, we're the Church of England. We have churches in every village and town and city. We have bishops in the House of Lords. Our origins are the Church of Bede and Augustine. We're the Church of Cranmer, of Whitfield of Simeon, of Shaftesbury, of Stott, so many famous Christian names. Our missionaries like Hannington and Martin took the gospel to the world. How easy to rest on privilege and reputation and to drift spiritually. Jesus says, yes, I know your deeds, I know your reputation, but today, faced with an indifferent and hostile nation, faced with false teaching and spiritual ignorance in the church, will you repent? Will you repent and complete your deeds? Look at verse 4. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. Will you keep your clothes unsoiled? Don't be polluted and corrupted by the world's values. Or think of us here at Trinity. Uh, many people know what we stand for. Let me say there is always an inevitable, it seems to me, adverse reaction to a church that preaches the gospel. We're told that. But... There's also good things that people say about the ministries we have. There's nothing wrong with a good reputation. Much better, let me say, than to have a bad reputation. <laughs> but it's easy, isn't it, to say, we did all that work in the past. We served in this way and that. But past deeds are gone. What are we doing in the present? Are we faithful now in doing the deeds that Jesus wants? 
Or are we drifting with work unfinished, just resting on what we've done in the past? It's easy to say, isn't it? I was converted back then, I was really keen then, but this is a different stage of life now. I mean, I did all that back then, but now I can settle down, take it a bit easy. Do we want to know Jesus better this morning? More? Do we want to love God more this morning? So easy is it to rest on what we did in the past and so just drift spiritually. Will we finish the deeds that the Lord Jesus has for us now? Now, what's the remedy for drifting? Well, let's just look at it. Five urgent commands. Verse 2, wake up. Wake up if you've settled for a casual and complacent approach to sin and how easy that is to do that, just to say, oh, I'm just going to accept it now. Jesus says, wake up. Wake up. Then he says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. This drifting in one's spiritual life happens gradually. And Jesus says here, strengthen what remains of that inner life. If you know Jesus is Lord this morning, then turn to him again. Let's turn to him as a church. Verse 3, remember therefore what you've received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. Let me say that if you are an inquirer this morning, or somebody who's exploring, coming back to the Christian faith. It's a reminder that we, we never move on from the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the basic truth of the gospel. That we're sinners who need the Lord Jesus Christ to rescue us, to give us forgiveness of sins, to rescue us from eternal death to eternal life, to rescue us from slavery to sin, to freedom, wonderful freedom in Christ. But that's also the solution to the drifting church, the sleepy church. Hold fast to that gospel. Remember your joy and contentment in Christ. Come back to that. And then look at the promise, verse 4. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who've not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes like them will be dressed in white. So be like them. Keep going. Keep holding on to the gospel. See the wonderful white garments in Revelation symbolize acceptance by God. Again, isn't that wonderful for the person who's inquiring? You can be accepted by God and symbolically dressed in white clothes with all your sin forgiven. They represent purity and holiness in his sight. And what a wonderful promise those are to those who wake up and repent, whether that's at the start of the Christian life or coming back. When we're drifting, we know we're drifting. And Jesus will acknowledge that person before God. Verse verse 5, I will never blot out, I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Imagine on the last day, at the judgment seat of Christ, when an angel says, who is she? Who is he? And Jesus says, your name. 
They're mine. They're mine. They're in my book of life. A drifting church that needs to wake up and repent. Then secondly, the enduring church. Again, keep holding on to the gospel. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Jesus holds the key of David. I think that means that that Jesus is the one who admits people into God's house, into his church, into his kingdom. Again, what a wonderful invitation that is for the inquirer, that Jesus is the one who longs for you to be part of his kingdom, his house. He's the one with the keys to eternal life in his church. Verse 8, I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So this church in Philadelphia, it, um, I think, was looked in the, in the world's eyes a weak church. A church, it says, with little strength, verse 8. Probably weak in numbers, not powerful, not influential in uh, the world's eyes. But against all the odds, this church had kept going. They'd been faithful to obeying the teaching of Jesus. They'd not denied his name. They'd endured. They'd persevered. And... In Philadelphia, God had op- has opened the door. I think that's an opportunity to make, keep you know, getting the gospel out, making it known. And they've done that in the face of great opposition, verse 9. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Can I say again that there's nothing here that is anti-Semitic, Uh, In the Roman Empire, the Jewish religion was legal. They had an exemption. Uh, You didn't have to worship the Roman emperor. Christianity grew out of the Jewish religion. It wanted the same freedom, but it wasn't given it. And Christianity was an illegal religion. And to follow Jesus meant great persecution, opposition, um, and possible death. And, of course, in Acts of the Apostles, the greatest opposition to the church comes from the synagogue. Uh, For them back then, saying that the emperor was God, that was their pressure point. Would the church stand firm and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, not Caesar? Now, let me say that our pressure point is different. Let me apply this nationally to the Church of England. Uh, Will the church as a denomination hold to the historic biblical teaching and about marriage and sexuality? That's what's going to be decided over the next few months. Well, actually, it's going to go on for ages and ages. 
At the moment, uh, we have an exemption. Under the equalities law of our country, it says that we can believe and teach what the church has always believed and taught. Now, we're not exempt from laws that protect people from hate speech or that protect people from coercive practices, and uh, nor should we be. But the bishops want to change the orthodox teaching. Uh, if, when the Church of England changes its teaching, and church leaders no longer have to commit to hold to the historic and universal teaching all down the ages about marriage and sexuality, where will the most fierce opposition come from? Who will campaign most vocally against those who hold to the historic biblical teaching? It'll come from religious people. That's actually already the case. I don't know if you know that uh, in Oxford in the last few weeks a, uh, there's been a publication uh, which is for all students starting at the university about which churches are safe for LGBT people. And so some great churches are listed right at the bottom as unsafe. Let me pose you a situation. Imagine that we were interviewing for our children and youth worker role and we asked that person what they will teach the young people in the church about marriage and sex. And in, then in their own life, will they hold to the historic and biblical position? And maybe a candidate complains that we've discriminated against them. At the moment, under the Equalities Law, we have protection. But if the bishops change the position, there will be enormous pressure to change the law. There already is. And the pressure and opposition will come from religious people. They will say, these people, these churches are not truly Christian. These people, these churches are hateful bigots. They should not have exemption under the law. The law should be changed and they should be punished. That's already what's being said online. Now, I say that's a possibility, but whatever happens, we'll have to endure faithfully. That's the, the great commendation here to the church in Philadelphia. And Jesus says to the church back then, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge I've loved you. So no need to fear the government or religious people who oppose and criticize. Verse 10, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. How does that encourage us here at Trinity? Well, I hope you can see some relevance, but this is what I want to say, that small, apparently weak churches do not need to give in. We need to endure and persevere, God is at work through his gospel and we're to hold on 
to the gospel. And you see, the door is open there in Philadelphia. It is for us. Marvelous times we've had uh, on Thursday and Friday. If you missed uh, coming, uh, you missed uh, some great puddings. You're going to get some more of those later. Great opportunities for the gospel. Much better to be small and apparently weak and enduring than to have a reputation and to be drifting. And you see, what confidence every church can have in Jesus. Uh, Verse 11, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Who's the strong one here? Not the government, not religious people who oppose the gospel and the Bible's teaching. The Lord Jesus Christ. He's the strong one. No one will take your crown. And look at verse 12. The one who is victorious, I will... (laughs) Do you ever want to be a pillar? This is it. The one who is victorious, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again (coughs) will they leave it. (coughs) I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. So you can be a pillar. Isn't that great? And you can be named by God. And you can have a luggage label attached to you saying, bound for heaven. Isn't that wonderful? If you're not a a believer here, what a wonderful privilege that is to... Be named by God and the Lord Jesus Christ. They're mine. And to have a luggage label, so to speak, bound for heaven, no longer lost. Again, I just want to say, much better to be a small, apparently weak and enduring church than to have a reputation and to be drifting. And then lastly... Uh, I put down the lukewarm, um, but actually it, it, it's worse than that. This is a useless church that needs to repent and renew fellowship with Jesus. Verse 14, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds. I know your deeds. Sorry, let me just turn the page. That you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. Uh, To be lukewarm means to be useless. And let me explain why. Up the road from Laodicea was a town with cold water springs. Down the road was another town with hot water springs. To have cold water was useful. I mean, who doesn't like cold water? It refreshes and revives. Hot water is useful. You can use it for cleaning, for lots of things. But Laodicea spring water was tepid or lukewarm. Not warm enough to bathe in, not not cold enough to uh, revive, horrible to drink. And people would spit it out. It was useless. And Jesus' diagnosis is devastating, isn't it? 
Verse 16, so because you're lukewarm, useless, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I'm about to. I'm about to do that. What are you going to do about it? Let me just look at the reaction of the church. (laughs) You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. You see, this church is arrogant and complacent. They claim to have money. They don't need others. But Jesus' assessment is devastating, isn't it? Look what he says. Verse 17, but you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, spiritually rich, so that you can become, and white clothes to wear, again, spiritual clothes that signify holiness and purity so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see, so you can see what really matters spiritually. Again, let me apply this nationally. I think it's valid. How easy for the Church of England to rest on its resources. Church commissioners have vast amounts of money. Not all of it, let me say, is going to my pension. How easy to be complacent. How easy for Western churches to think that they know better than Jesus and his word and to say we know better than those people down in Africa or in Asia or in South America. We don't need to learn from churches that are growing. We don't need a thing from you actually, but all we do want you to is to walk together with us as we change the faith. No, they don't say that. But they say, do walk together. This is our expression of Christianity now. And Jesus says to Laodicea in verse 9, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. It's one of the staggering things for those of us who have been in the Church of England all their lives is that I can't think of any time when a bishop has said, what... Uh, Will we recognize God's disciplining in what's happening? Will we listen and repent? I struggle to remember a time when any bishop has said that. What about the application to us? Comparatively, Trinity is a rich church. Let me say our giving is generous. And it's easy to think that we'll be okay But do we recognize that we're in need? Do we show that we need help? Nobody has applied to be children and youth worker. Let me say every church leader is saying that there is a shortage of those workers. We can't find a part-time administrator. 
We're learning patience, aren't we? That's part of God's disciplining. Uh, we're learning to serve in different ways. I think the administrator's job's been broken up into 14 different areas. And we're all talking to each other. <laughs> but I mean, my point is, we're being moved out of our comfort zones. That is to keep us humble and dependent, isn't it? To stop us just thinking, well, we, we'll let them get on with it. Now, praise God that so many are serving. Praise God. But let me ask us as a church this. Do we express our collective dependence on God in prayer? Do we collectively cry out to our Father in prayer? Most people in Buxton are heading for a lost eternity. And we have the good news. Are we praying together for the gospel? I know that people pray individually. But are we praying for the big things? For the Lord to have mercy. Let me ask this question. Do the low numbers at our church prayer meeting indicate that many of us think that we don't need God's help? After all, a church praying together is an expression of how needy we are. Now, of course, we're praying together this morning. This is the most important meeting, along with our evening meeting. But after that comes the church prayer meeting, where we can actually pray for lots of other things. Can I encourage us to meet together at the monthly church prayer meeting? Do it online, if you can't make it in person. Does our lack of numbers at our corporate prayer meeting indicate that we don't need, whereas actually we do? Let's look finally at these wonderful promises. Aren't they wonderful promises at the end? Look at verse 20. Here's the promise of renewed fellowship with those who turn back, who repent. A great verse that's been used by many people, uh, has been used by God, by many people at the start of the Christian life. But it's primarily for churches, Christians that are lukewarm. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. What an invitation, what a promise. Jesus stands knocking. And the invitation is made to anyone who hears his voice. If we open the door, individually, corporately, Jesus will come in and eat with us. That's the greatest level of intimacy, isn't it? Symbolized by a fellowship meal. Spiritual fellowship in our hearts and minds. This is spiritual companionship. The risen Jesus longing to be in our lives. This is spiritual power. The risen Jesus energizing us with his presence and his strength by his spirit. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. 
Do you know you need to turn back to Jesus this morning to renew fellowship with him? And then a wonderful promise. Again, 21. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. He'll share his throne with us. Let's pray.